The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. We've added a voice to the mix now. <laughs> Jason Byrne, Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr. Tony Matthews, Urban Planners with the School of Environment at Griffith University, our regular Thursday afternoon guests to talk all kinds of stuff, really. Last week we were talking about cars and their consciousness or otherwise, robotic consciousness. Impending consciousness. The, the ethics of uh, electronic driverless cars. Uh, today we're talking about power and energy and our energy needs of the future, some novel ideas about where we're going to get it from. That to come, first they welcome. Hello. Thank you, Matt. Hello. Thank you, Matt. Good to see you back. Now, um, where to begin with this idea? People turn on a button at the wall and the light goes on and no one really gives it much thought until they have to pay their bill. But... Uh, maybe that's the spot to start. Affordability going forward, demand going forward. Um, what does the future look like in terms of energy generation and the needs thereof? I think it's a good place to start. Um, how interesting was the guy earlier this week who put all the Tesla power walls mm. into his house because his energy consumption was so high? And uh, he put solar panels on the roof and they said, look, you're going to need a bit of storage capacity there for your household needs. And that's really the trigger here is that electricity is becoming increasingly expensive uh, in Australia and in Queensland too. Uh, it's, yeah, it's horrendously expensive. And it's, it's, uh, in many states it's going that way. And, and a lot of that price problematic is connected to um, the actual grid infrastructure itself. And basically what's happening is grids are being expanded, improved and um, fortified and consumers are paying for it. Yeah, it's over, what they call, over again. Yeah, it's what they call platinum plating or gold plating the grid. So the grids are getting old. You know, these big ta towers, yeah. the transmission towers, that sort of stuff, they have to be upgraded. Um, as Australia is getting hotter with things like climate change, the grids don't handle it quite so well. Um, we've got demands with peak power in the afternoon, peak demand. So people get home from work, their house is hot, they switch on the air conditioner, and then suddenly the grid can't cope and it starts blacking out and going down. Um, how do we cope with that? Uh, one interesting thing that's happened, Tony, is that we've had this kind of uh, ballooning of um, solar panels on roofs in Australia, especially Queensland, right? Yeah, so the rollout of solar panels uh, across the state of Queensland has been nothing short of phenomenal. Um, when you consider that 10 years ago they were a pretty uncommon site and now they're on about 30% of houses. 30%? Yeah. Pretty high number. Yeah. Pretty high number. Queensland is way out there in front, not just in Australia, but globally in terms of its solar uptake. We had, I think, two days last year where the whole state was more or less being run on, on solar or could have been. Um, that's not necessarily the way the system works. Is that solar just generally, or is that solar for hot water and off the grid for other things? So or there, is it any kind of solar? What's the measure Well, there's, 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 there's two types, basically. I mean, to keep it simple, there's, there's generating electricity via solar, and then there's heating your water via mm. solar. You can do either. Um, they're slightly different technologies. Uh, probably 10 years ago, most people were just using solar for water heating. Uh, now much more people are using solar for electricity as well. And they do slightly different things, right? So when you've got solar hot water systems on your roof, that's effectively reducing demand for electricity. You're not having to pay for electricity from the grid to heat your hot water. Yep, the sun's yep, yep, doing yep. it for you free of charge, right? 
when you've got photovoltaic solar panels on the roof, they're generating electricity for you, but can also feed back into the grid, right, Tony? Yeah, they can. Uh, if you produce enough, they can feed back into the grid. Um, and I mean, that's one of the pinch points that a lot of uh, countries run into um, is feeding back to the grid. Is, is, so what happens is somebody puts a, a, an array of solar panels on their roof, they generate more electricity than they, than they need, that electricity needs to go somewhere. Can it be fed back into the grid? Yes or no, that presents a technical challenge. And then there's also a, um, a price issue. Some countries and some jurisdictions will actually pay you for your electricity. Others will accept it but not pay you for it. And there's constant pressure to push down the amount of, that uh, utilities are paying for feed-in. Yeah, okay. Our problem in Queensland, Matt, is that um, our grids are not really designed to cope with this. They, you know, they weren't engineered at the time that when people were thinking about, oh, the flow might be two-way. People might be putting power back into the grid. So they're not effectively designed to cope with that. Which is another cost it's to another, make it exactly, capable of doing that two-way kind of transaction. Right. And, you know, you pointed to an interesting thing about um, our reliability on the grid and power. What happens if a cyclone comes through? in Queensland and knocks out the power stations for a while. We almost had that in 2011 with the floods where the supply of coal was dwindling at the power stations because the rail lines were severed and the coal trains couldn't get in. Um, I remember something similar from when I was living in Melbourne too, one of the, the, uh, the power stations that it was a high demand moment, air conditioning was a, was a must, a you know, hot dry Melbourne day, 40 degrees plus, uh, and I can't remember exactly what went wrong, but something happened at a power station that was calamitous, and all of a sudden, no power. Yeah, the grid uh, goes the down. metropolitan mm. area, the grid goes down, and it doesn't happen a lot. No, but the trains stop functioning. Mm, mm. Um, hospitals have to switch up to, to backup generators, those that have them. If they don't, we've got major problems. Yeah, sorts of trouble. Refrigeration yeah. goes off, food supplies start to dwindle. Um, it's quite scary, actually, Tony, how vulnerable our cities are to power losses, right? Even water. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing. If the, if the grid goes down, you know, it inconveniences you because you can't switch on the light or boil the kettle or something like that. But what you're probably not thinking about is the fact that the grid is also supplying can't electricity charge, to... Can't charge my phone, Yeah, Tony. That's a big problem for people. <laughs> In fact, actually, when Hurricane Sandy came through the east coast of the US, uh, the few houses that managed to retain their power supplies were, were setting up all of these um, uh, extension cables with power boxes outside so that people could charge their phones and stay in contact the with relatives. You know? yeah, right. It was yeah. real community-based stuff. But... Um, you know, if the, if the power grid goes down, yes, it's personally inconvenient, but what you may not necessarily be thinking of is there's power required to process um, sewage. So, for example, you flush your toilet, that goes somewhere, it gets pro that takes electricity. To produce the water that you drink takes electricity. For traffic flow to be managed, that requires electricity. So, to, when the grid goes even, down... To even move water in high-rise buildings, yeah. right? That takes to pumps. Get it out. pumps. Yeah. 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 So when the grid goes down, it's catastrophic on an urban level, not just a personal inconvenience level. Yeah, somewhat, somewhat. Okay, so that that's the calamity side of things. Can we sort of get the crystal ball out and look ahead? A city like Gold Coast, what sort of needs does it have looking forward? And what kind of novel approaches, uh, if not in the mix, possibly could be in the mix? That's a great question. So about 88% of our energy in Queensland at the moment comes from black coal. So we're highly dependent upon black 88%. coal. 88%. 88%. A very high proportion from black coal. Renewables are still quite low, so we've got 10% from gas and then the balance from renewables is quite low. But what we're seeing is some revolutionary changes to technology at the moment. Uh, for example, uh, there's new solar panels that are being developed which are like a film that you can apply to your window. Right. Which you see through... So you can still see outside, but your window is effectively generating electricity. For Almost you. like window tinting, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, right. So it actually helps to cool the interior of the space because not as much light is getting mm. in. 
but then it, you, you could see the skyscrapers on the Gold Coast effectively being converted into power stations, right? So instead of consuming power, you've got this new solar technology, they're generating power. This is a thing. This is a thing. This it can is be very done. much a thing. Wow, it's, it's that's not just great. windows. You can, I mean, you, this technology is coming on stream and it can be applied to building facades just to the wall itself. Uh, I mean, it's just like cling film, it just rolls on. Uh, and it acts as a photovoltaic uh, solar power panel uh, and it can collect light from the sun and then convert that into electricity. So the early technology, the early tech was, was, was window films, but now entire building wraps are coming uh, on stream and are becoming commercialized. And the reason for this is because we've had about 10 years globally now of really healthy uptake in solar uh, power and solar investment. It's waxed and waned in this country. There's support for it, there isn't support for it, there's subsidy for it, there isn't subsidy for it. Other countries have moved much further ahead with it. And so what's tended to happen is, and we've, we've picked up on this in other shows previously on our other episodes of the Urban Squeeze, you've got the economies of scale now are kicking in. So the, the price of the technology is dropping and the level of innovation and R&D investment into the technology is increasing. So we're starting to see amazing things coming online now that are, are not necessarily that far beyond the price threshold of the average householder. Still that outlay though, and I know this from personal experience from looking into uh, having the situation where we can run an entire household using solar power, generating our own power and maybe feeding a little bit back in, uh, there is still a fairly healthy upfront cost attached to this that would not be accessible to many households, I wouldn't think. So that's a really interesting question. That's something that researchers in Australia have been looking at. So, you know, is solar and the solar subsidies, is that just a form of, like, upper-middle-class welfare? Yeah. Or is this truly available to households on the fringe who have these high mortgage costs, transport mm. costs, that kind of stuff? And what we're actually finding in Australia is that there are a larger percentage of houses than you would expect in these areas who are, who are marginalised and poorer that are adopting these solar technologies because you can see the trend already, right? Electricity yeah. is getting more expensive as these grids are being um, improved. Also, as we switch away from coal, there's a, there's a cost there as well. Uh, so it makes sense for many households to start going, well, maybe if we pinch our belt in these areas, we could put some solar panels on. It'll come It'll back come. in and years. Even the price, right? So we put solar panels on our roof a little while ago. The price has come down dramatically since then. They're at least a third less expensive than what they were when we put them on our roof. I might have to reinvestigate by the sounds of things. What about things like uh, well, wind farms? Watch the phones light up here. Oh, here if, we you, go. if you do want to talk, one three hundred nine zero three ninety one seven. Happy to take calls. The guys are two. Tony Matthews, Dr Tony Matthews, Associate Professor Jason Byrne from Griffith University. They're urban planners. Um, uh, wind generated power, um, tidal generated power. I mean, are these viable options here on the coast? They um, are. They are, yeah. I mean, well, wind is a viable option, right? I mean, wind gets ragged on all the time, <laughs> but it's a really viable option, and uh, the big problem with wind is the visual thing. A lot of people don't like the look of wind turbines. It's one of these things that you either find acceptable or grossly unacceptable. Mm. It doesn't seem to be middle ground. Uh, that's one. And then this, this psychosis known as wind turbine syndrome, which is not a real thing. <laughs> Okay, I've said it on air. It's not a real thing. You can set up as many Senate subcommittees as you want. It's not a real thing. And no, also, no scientific literature supports the existence right. of wind turbine syndrome. The medical studies are you, have been are done. Are you daring to exist. suggest that the science is settled, Tony? Not Matthews. settled, but I'm saying that it's leaning very heavily in one direction. <laughs> okay. But, you know, we don't have to have giant wind turbines. So Tony and I have both travelled throughout Europe. 
Um, I've travelled from Denmark to Sweden before, looked across that channel at the beautiful batteries of wind farms. I actually think they, they look gorgeous. Um, I don't mind them either. Yeah, in, I, in the same sense as oil pumps kind of can have a certain yeah, people, appeal. People put up with oil pumps, so yeah. wind farms look, I think, a lot better than that. But it doesn't need to be the big scale, right? You don't need turbines that are the wingspan of a 747 like they have. You can have micro-turbine technology as well, and they're doing that in some airports around the world now where they're using what's called the Venturi effect, so the airflow across the roof of a building even on a relatively calm day, can generate a small amount of wind, a, a small breeze, if you want, that can power these micro-turbines that are set across the leading edge of the roof. So they're running constantly at a level that generates low power per turbine, but when they're in a battery, it generates a lot of power. Amazing. A surprising amount of power. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, about, what, what, what about biogas or biofuel technology? How does that all work? Well, they're very different things. Um, biofuel is effectively fuel that is, is in some way grown either as crops or in tanks as algae and biogas is waste gas from usually methane from landfill and some industrial processes so they're quite different things um, Jason knows all about biogas I'll pass yeah, that so one to him I mean I, I talk to my students all the time about biogas and they're just going what is it with you yeah, and biogas yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we actually have biogas for energy on the Gold Coast already some of our landfill sites which they have anaerobic digesting going on inside. The little bacteria and microbes produce methane. You can capture that and use that to burn to create electricity. So we have those landfill sites on the Gold Coast already where we're doing that. Um, something that they do in China and India is they use the waste from pig farms and they combine it with human excrement. They put mm. it together in a methane digester and they brew it up and they use that to generate power. So we could, and we've already got this at Eleonora, the wastewater treatment plant there. They've got a biogas generation site. So you could easily use this kind of raw material input from cities. There's a lot of poo that comes yeah. out of cities, right? And we can use that to turn it into energy. That that works. Poo power. I'm right. excited. The prospect. Hang on. Tom from uh, Palm Beach has a question. Uh, Tom, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Uh, what did you uh, want to ask, mate? Well, before I ask, I want to make a comment. About 25 years ago, I was at a business breakfast, and I asked the uh, PR guy from Interject, who was talking about the future and the short-term about Interject's you know, financial future, I said, are you concerned about the rooftop solar collection that will be happening eventually, uh, how that might impact your business? And he said, never happened, never happened. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> um, but, but I do have another question. That is, um, we're talking about wind energy a moment ago. Mm. And I'm wondering why there isn't more discussion about micro wind generation on rooftops like solar panels being used and whether there, there's any zoning ordinances about it, people putting a couple of fans on their roof to generate a bit more electricity. I'm just wondering if the guests can speak about the prospects for people putting wind power on the roof as well as solar, solar photovoltaic. Good question. Tom, who wants to take this one? Jason? I'll take it. I, I think that's a really good question, a really good point. I'm sniggering here at what the uh, um, guy said 25 years ago about, 25 years ago about rooftop solar. Uh, he should have bought shares back then. You should have um, the uh, mounting wind turbines on uh, a residential property, the major problem or one of the major problems is actually structural integrity. Is the roof strong enough to put up with the turbines, particularly in the middle of a storm or a very, very heavy weather day? Um, that's a really big issue. There's plenty of documented cases of people putting these things up on the corners of houses or on the eaves of houses and a heavy wind comes through and tears it down and half the roof with it. So, so that's the first thing you've got to make sure is that, that you're installed properly. Is yeah. installed properly and that your roof is structurally strong enough. Yeah. But you know, you can have them on, uh, you sit them on boats, right? These little wind yeah, generators yeah, on boats. Yeah. So you can have them mounted on a, a pylon and as long as it's not causing any intrusion to the neighbor's television antenna or, um, or overshadowing that kind of stuff, I couldn't see a reason why they wouldn't be considered. Um, 
I think it's more about knowledge. People are just generally not aware that you can get these wind turbines at a small scale. So Griffith at the moment is actually pilot trialling a wind turbine it has on its multi-storey car park, a fairly small one, and that generates enough energy by the look of things from the data to power the lights in the multi-storey car park. So yeah. these things are around. It's not far off. Tom, thanks for the question. No, thanks for the answers. Good on you. Tom from Palm Beach there. Rooftop wind generation. Um, fascinating. Is there, this, is there enough uh, incentive for, uh, for um, governments at any level to um, be inspired by some of these ideas? Tony, this is, I think, one that we were talking about a little while ago was wave power and wave machines. In Western Australia, they're looking at wave power, right? Yeah, There's some government involvement at a very small scale there. Mm, yeah, wave power is... There have been a number of really interesting-looking technologies have tried to capture wave power over the last 10 to 15 years, and most of them have not made it to any sort of level of commercialization because they found that there's technical problems or there's structural problems. So one of the things, if you're going to take advantage of wave power, what, what you're doing is you're taking advantage of the, of the uh, energy of the waves so the sea is rising and falling and you're trying to generate power using that, basically. That's to mm. put it crudely. So you need some sort of a device that's sitting out there in the waves that is collecting power and then distributing it back to the mainland. Uh, and one of the big issues that a lot of these companies are running into is that the devices that they're creating, whether they're single pods or they're a line of pods like a snake at the top of the sea uh, surface, is these technologies are not standing up to heavy weather. They'll, they'll last for a while, but then a really heavy storm will come through and it'll just rip them up. And so all of the investment that's gone in, all of the money that was borrowed to develop the prototype, it's all lost. And so that's a really big problem with wave power. So that's one of the things that's significantly holding that up. But as Jason says, and I'll pass over to you on this one, there are some really interesting um, uh, advantages or what seem to be advantages coming out of WA right now. Yeah, so they're, they're trialling wave power technology there and it looks like it, it may actually be successful. There's some fairly strong offshore swells, even offshore from Perth around Rottnest Island, and mm. they're, they're kind of trialling it in waters to see how it goes. But tidal power is the other one, and Scotland's got a lot of heavy swells around Scotland in the in the, the bad weather they, they get up that way, and they're working with tidal power generators that sit on the seafloor. They're like these wind turbines that you think of, but, yeah, yeah. but they'll be installed on the seafloor, and they'll begin to be able to harness power as well. Just whirring around Just whirring underneath along. it all. Yeah, so then you don't have people worried necessarily about looking out at wind farms and not being so happy about that. How big a tide do you need to make that worthwhile or can it work in any kind of condition? That's a magic question. I wish I could answer that one. I'm not an expert on the tidal power. But, um, I like the idea, though. Colors, I yeah. like the idea. See, that's the thing. We sort of talk about these things in abstract a lot of the time, and there's kind of the, the boffin element. There's people that are testing, and there's people... But these are things that are actually happening now. They're happening now. You just don't see them as part of the, the modern landscape. And I guess one that I could point out, and we were talking about this in the car as well, weren't we, Tony, was um, the idea of lessening demand, so energy efficiency. We don't normally see energy efficiency in action, but the listeners out there might want to have a look at the traffic lights the next time they're approaching a traffic light mm. and see if it's one of these traffic lights that looks solid or one that has all these little dots in the light. Have you seen those mm. at all, Matt? Mm. Those little dots are LED traffic lights. They last much, much longer and they use a fraction of the power of a regular traffic light. So we're seeing real energy savings across the city like the Gold Coast as they get installed and you wouldn't even know that they're in the background doing their job. Yeah. Um, so there's some benefits there yeah, too. Energy efficiency. I mean, if, if, if your end game is to lower how much you're spending on your bills 
and lower your carbon footprint, then energy efficiency is probably still the best thing that you can do, is make your house or your office more energy efficient, put in insulation, double glazing, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's not nearly as sexy as renewable energy. But I'll give you a good example. Um, the Empire State Building in New York underwent what was what's known as a deep energy retrofit. That is that they didn't just provide sort of insulation around the, the, the outer walls of the building. Every part of the building had a deep retrofit for energy. So there was internal insulation, put in LED lighting, all sorts of uh, um, initiatives were, uh, were put in there. And it, it was guided by the Rocky Mountain Institute or a think tank in the US. It took about two years to complete the, the retrofit and it cost, from memory, I think it was $37 million. And the projection was that it would take five years to pay itself back in reduced energy costs mm. for the building. So the building's electricity bill will go down within 18 months they were making money. 18 months. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. We think these technologies are going to be expensive. We think they're going to take a long time to get approval or uptake, and yet the real crunch seems to be the price point. We're seeing shopping centres across Australia now putting solar on their roof because it's actually cheaper than continuing to pay for the grid power. So I think you're right, Tony, there's some big savings. It becomes a question of will then. Guys, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately. You make me want to be an urban planner when you guys come. I get all excited. Oh, we're working on you, Matt. We're working <laughs> on you. <laughs> I might run off. Back yeah, we have a great master's program at Griffith. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, 91.7 ABC Gold Coast, uh, always love having these guys in. Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr Tony Matthews from the School of Environment at Griffith University. Until next week, gents, thank you so much. Thank you very Matt. much, Matt. A pleasure.